I only go to get my parcel and they'll ask me, are you busy tonight? I say I might be playing Xbox, I've caught chicken pox Or any other excuse, they could say there'll be a man breathing fire Tyro walking a high wire, no I never mean to be rude I'm never really interested, not even when they've instead it Unless they say there's free drinks and food Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Free Food, Free Drinks podcast. This week we have the wonderful Zach Liddell. I'm never going to tell a mathematician how they should, you know, or what to teach during a, a maths program. But I can have a conversation with you about your assessment loads and your assessment patterns and how your students engage in your teaching and your education because I have experience in, in that pedagogical field. But also you have to recognise that my experience within the professional services route that I've taken is equally valid. And we can have a constructive conversation in order to develop our students and their experience. Zach is Head of Education and Student Experience at UCL, for one of the faculties at UCL. And we speak to him about a whole range of things. Zach is particularly passionate about student voice and student voices on campus and in higher education. And we touch on that a lot through this episode. Zach is also, like us, an ARU grad, so we will talk a little bit about the influence our master's degrees have had on our time in education and the things we've taken away from it and how we then employ them in our jobs as well. Without much further ado, though, let's hear what Zach had to say. Zach, welcome on the podcast. A pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Now, you have discussed with us uh, outside of the podcast, but also before we got started today, you have a really interesting role, I think, in higher education. It's part of the reason we brought you on today, because you know we obviously know you outside of the podcast as well, but your role involves quite a lot of really interesting things that I think is perhaps not given as much of a spotlight in higher education at the moment that it deserves, and actually has a really integral role in how students experience their time at university at the moment. So I think the best place to start is basically just to have a look at what your role is uh, and that you're working at UCL at the moment aren't you? Yeah yeah so um, yeah so I'm head of education and student experience uh, for the faculty of maths and physical sciences at UCL um, which is one of the larger faculties at UCL so we have about 5,000 undergrad and postgraduate taught students uh, about 10 different departments and institutes so it's, it, it's pretty big um, especially given my remit and the kind of departments and subject areas we, we cover. So essentially my role, it, I feel, is in this grey area between academia, professional services, administration, student affairs, um, where essentially anything to do with students I am involved in in some way, um, whether I like it or not. Um, and I I think about my role in, in a couple of different ways. So there's the kind of leadership and support side, uh, for the education. So for instance, I'm, I'm chair of the faculty education committee. So that's uh, the major kind of governing board for the faculty's education. Um, so you can imagine how much work there's been over the last year with uh, with sciences like uh, chemistry and physics of how do we teach that online. Um, and then there's the student casework side. So complex uh, student extenuating circumstances come to me. Uh, the, fa- the departments will contact me if they need advice on the student support cases. I deal with uh, complaints and appeals. If uh, students aren't engaging, I, uh, I'm in charge of kind of the re-engaging or suspension policy, which isn't a very nice part of my job. Um, and then there's the kind of big strategic bit. 
around like various projects and initiatives to make sure that we're providing the best experience uh, and education that we can. Yeah, it's a bit it's it's a bit of a weird one, and I was I was trying to think of an example today to uh, to kind of quantify this in people's minds, and uh, something that came up in a discussion with my departments today was around assessment. So you know we're we're thinking about how we're going to teach and assess next year, and what we found this year is that you know students are engaging with the kind of pre-recorded um, online materials that we've done a lot more than they normally would. So they're spending in like an hour on a 20 minute video, um, which is just way too much. So we need to think about, okay, well, that's how students are addressing, are engaging with their studies. So let's think about how we can manage their expectations of what they should be doing, because we also need to make sure that when they're here in person, that they've got enough time to engage in societies and clubs. And what about our current first years who are going to go into their second year who haven't had an induction like we normally would, don't necessarily have a sense of community. And all of this fits together. And it's about that wider student experience in the context of their education and how we are assessing and teaching students and making room for everything else and supporting them to succeed. Um, it's a very long-winded answer, but that's kind of what my role is. That's a really, really, really big remiss, Zach. Sorry, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. Do, do you know what, I feel, like, <laughs> I feel like I haven't even explained it fully. Probably would have been quicker just to say what you don't do, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I don't do estates, uh, I don't do budgets, and I don't do... A, res life there you go oh you're missing out that you're you're missing out my, my first question is um how do you teach science and physics online i have this image of students at home with bunsen burners and <laughs> maybe that's an old school way of teaching science i don't know but in my mind i just saw everybody at home with like uh you know your old school kind of chemistry setup <laughs> but you know what we we have done some of that um i've got some some really incredible departments. I, I feel genuinely very lucky to work for the faculty that I do. Um, so our chemistry department, they did actually put together chemistry kits and send them out to first year students to teach them the fundamentals of chemistry. And one of the fundamentals of chemistry is actually things like measuring. So they sent them mechanical pipettes and things that they could do. And there was some baking involved at one point. Um, and because you're, you're giving students those fundamentals of, of of measuring um, and experimenting, um, and it's the same with with physics as well. You know, they can they can break things down to the to the basics for students of okay, well, what we're actually talking about is data analysis. Um, whether you're doing that in the lab or we're giving you preset data, you you can do that. I mean, the, one of the cooler things as well was earth sciences. I have an earth sciences department, and they made over the summer. Uh, they went up to Scotland and other places and have made virtual field trips with like virtual reality and students can log on and you can see the other students and and really get into like all the rock formations, things that I don't understand. But it was all very cool. That's incredible because these are the stories that we don't hear about. We know that departments and lecturers are going to all these extraordinary lengths to ensure students have some sort of you know fantastic online uh, university education experience but you don't hear those unique individual stories of doing those like virtual reality field yeah. trips and sending those kids home 
So actually, I wasn't far wrong when I thought about Bunsen burners. <laughs> no, no, you really weren't. I mean, we didn't send them Bunsen burners, uh, <laughs> but we sent them other things. Um, something that you touch on there, actually, Zach, is, you know, one of your responsibilities is reviewing uh, mitigating circumstances mm-hmm. and complaints and uh, appeals. And I'm sure because of what's going on right now in the world, you are extremely busy with both those particular areas of your remit. What kind of challenges are you seeing? Oh, uh, well, we're, we're seeing a lot. I mean, every EC that's coming through at the moment talks about uh, the impact of COVID on individual students and then therefore their assessments. Something that UCL did last year um, was, well, yes, last year, we put in a self-certification policy. So I know that this is something that other universities have had had before, uh, but it's not something UCL um, had had up until last summer. So last summer, we suspended the need, any need for evidence requirements, because mainly because of the pressure on the NHS, because students, if they were ill, were never going to get it. But also to recognise the fact that well, this is an issue for students as well, just like the rest of us are struggling and everything's just everything's just a lot, isn't it? We're all on our screens every day. Um, and so we, we were just allowing for, for self-certification in that way. And so then this year, we've, we've carried that self-certification on. We put limits in at first, up until very recently, of uh, where students could only self-certify twice a year for 14-day periods. Uh, but that's now been increased to five um, and there's some other policy decisions that have been made recently by UCL to let students, in some circumstances, spread their assessment over two assessment periods. So if they've got, you know, say eight exams in the main exam period, they can split that out to to have some in, in late summer. Um, but I mean, the, we really have been dealing with all of the normal extenuating circumstances that we get, you know, if students are ill, X, Y, Z, uh, without evidence. Uh, but everything is citing uh, COVID. But in the midst of all that, and I think it's being forgotten about a bit, you're still getting students coming forward with really severe and quite harrowing circumstances sometimes, which are happening amongst a global pandemic, which I think is really hard uh, for the students and for the staff who were trying to deal with this as well. That's very true. And I suppose that, as you say, is, is one of the major points is the world doesn't stop turning right so everybody's individual circumstance whether it existed pre-pandemic or or came up during the pandemic everything else is still happening with students and and the the spectrum of concerns of welfare issues of anything or illnesses don't stop just because of covid and you know i I suppose from from my point of view looking at a team like yours and and a role like yours that the demand when you place COVID on top of what already is a demanding role and a demanding set of circumstances must be really difficult at the moment. How, how are you and your team managing that at the moment? Um, I think everyone is very tired. <laughs> we, you know, we're coming up to a year of working from home. Um, I mean, the, the majority of the work, I have to say, is, is happening in departments. I'm there for the, to, to support them and I'm, I'm a point of escalation, but they are the ones at the coalface uh, dealing with this day in, day out. I mean, we've had to be really smart in how we, in our processes is, is part of it. Um, so we created new ways for students to be engaged with the extenuating circumstances process, for instance, and for staff to be able to manage that workload. UCL has been more flexible in terms of our evidence requirements, as I said. The thing is, additional workload 
and staff stress and student stress. At the moment, it all kind of feels very unavoidable. It was always going to be a difficult year. And I think people are, are seeing the light at the end of tunnel a little, um, but we've still got, got some way to go. And so I think it's just about trying to remain empathetic with each other um, in terms of the work that's ongoing and being as flexible as we can with each other. And just remembering that whilst we're stressed, the students are, are going through something similar as well. Absolutely. And, you know, Zach, Rob and I know you outside of the podcast and you describe yourself as someone who is a student voice advocate, which I love. Um, I'd love you to talk to me a bit about that, where that comes from, why you describe yourself in that way and, you know, talk a bit more about because it's a a passion for you. It kind of flows through your work. It's why you do what you do. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, student voice is, it should be at the heart of everything we do. Uh, because without students, we are all utterly irrelevant. That's really what, what it comes down to. Um, and I'm going to try and not get into an argument around fees and the marketization of higher education just yet. Um, but There's still time. Yeah, there's still time. Um, but, the, you know, the students are our, 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 our primary purpose of universities. The, the very fundamentals of university is about the pursuit and sharing of knowledge and if we don't have students to share that knowledge with then what the hell are we doing here i mean from my my personal point of view you know i went to university and it was transformative for me and i was a sabbatical officer just like many people who work in student affairs nowadays um and i do try and keep that at the heart of everything because i know how transformative it was for the university where i was at at the time to have that kind of strength of student voice and i think for me you know, student partnership and co-creation. It's not just about voices. It's about co-creating is is key to all the improvements that we make. I mean, and that's not to say that students should be, you know, student voices right about everything because students aren't always right. Um, There is still a space for academic decision-making. You know, should a student dictate what they should be assessed on? No. Should students be able to be part of the conversation of how they are assessed by the experts in that field? Absolutely. Um, I mean, it, it is uh, it, it is hard to do. And, you know, I fail sometimes because it's it's easier not to involve students sometimes. Um, you know, I, I had an example recently. I'm lucky enough to be um, leading a review of UCL student support policies. I mean, we've been somewhat disrupted by COVID, um, but we kind of came back from a period of, of suspension over the COVID period last summer. We're like, right, well, we need to get some staff perceptions on the extenuating circumstances policies. As we sent a survey out and we got that in, and one of the SABs from the SU, um, from UCL Students Union, said to me, okay, well, what are we doing for students? And I caught myself and I was thinking, what am I doing? <laughs> I am always... You know, because I thought, oh, well, we'll we'll consult the staff and then we'll go to students with some thoughts and some potential solutions. It's like, no, that is against everything that I know, the approach that I tried to do, which is to involve students at the point of creation. Don't go to students with options. Go to them, you know, bring them into the conversation of how to solve a problem. Um, so we've come up with a, a different way of doing it. We're going to, you know, survey some student leaders, but then we're going to uh, we're looking to pay some student interns to help us write from scratch some student support policies and just see what they come up with. Um, 
but it is so easy to just say, oh, well, we'll, we'll send out a survey or we'll, we'll ask them what they think of the solution that we have come up with in isolation of them because it's sometimes quicker and easier to do. But if we, the things that really, really work and are really, truly transformative for students are the things that we involve them in from the beginning. Yeah, and I, I also think that actually sometimes when the powers that be in higher ed are starting off or creating projects, there's there's some ego involved. You know, someone has come up with this idea or a department or a group of people and they want to see it through. And heaven forbid we involve students and their ideas get changed. And I do think that is actually quite a reality that, that there's, you know, there's egos involved and people want to get the praise if it goes well. Um, not so much, obviously, if it goes wrong. Um, and they don't want to hand over any of that credit to, to any student who might make it better or actually make the project more of a success if they were or were not involved. Yeah, I think there is a, a certain amount of that, particularly when it comes to student unions. Uh, and it's it all comes down, really, I think, to the relationship that a student's union has with an institution in, its, in itself of whether that's an adversarial or partnership relationship. Uh, because student unions often rely so heavily on block grants from the university, there can be that that odd power dynamic where the university knows that, well, the students' union would be nothing without us. Uh, but actually, student unions have a really powerful role to play. Um, but it's whether that's coming from, from an adversarial place or not. Yeah, and I think something that I've certainly found, and I don't know if, if you would agree, but you know, the term student voice should hopefully be relatively well known to everybody uh, listening and should be something that most people are are somewhat aware of, of what that con- connotation is and what it means. But the flip side of that is I think that student voice often gets misinterpreted, especially by staff, as student opinion. And the two are very different, student voice and student opinion. Or just Rob, the student union, you know? Yeah, indeed. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it kind of gets um, it kind of gets boiled down into one part of student voice, which often is, yes, it's, it's either what the SU says or it's, oh, let's get the students' thoughts on this. And, and like you say, student voice is a lot more uh, detailed than that. It's a lot more, it's a lot broader than that. And as you say, it involves them actually being part of the conversation rather than that kind of that thing that you bounce an idea off. That's that's not that's not what they're there for. They're not there to be told what the options are and to here you go. It's a multiple choice thing. Back to your sats. You've got a choice of one out of three. It doesn't matter if all three are rubbish, but you have to pick one of them. The point is that, well, how can we make those three options? as good as they can be by involving them. And I think, you know, I've certainly found that it, it can get bastardized into something else. Yeah, you hear it a lot of people say, oh, well, what's the student voice on this? But isn't it that it should be, you know, it's not student voice, it's student voices. Yes, exactly. exactly. You no, know, I'm going I'm to throw a word in now that Dr. Nikki Saul will be proud of. You know, it's the intersectionality. Get Absolutely. Me. Absolutely. Nice, nice. Shout out, Nikki, if you're listening. <laughs> That's one for you, Nikki. She'd better be listening. You're her favourite student, Zach. You're def- she's definitely going to be listening. <laughs> That's a lie. That is a lie. You are a little bit, though, Zach. You just are. Um, hashtag intersectionality, Nikki, if you're listening. But no, but you're right. I mean, that's exactly what it is, you know. And and when you say it's Rebecca, when it's student voices, that's exactly what it is because it, it's about getting 
every student's opinion, obviously, as, as much as you can, or a representative proportion of students. And, you know, we've had this conversation before in other podcast episodes, and we've alluded to it uh, in the last episode, which was um, when I was discussing my uh, recent research when I came out of the Masters, which is that as universities, we love to group students into blocks, right? So we have um, students who are international and we have students who are home we have students who are care leavers we have students who are on visas that are not and i think often that kind of grouping of students completely dismantles the ability to really take in broad student voices and it becomes sort of almost second nature for people just to go well we'll, we'll pick and choose what we want to hear or what we want to what opinion we want to get and, and it becomes a bit I don't know, yeah, watered down. I think, this, I think some of that comes down to the confidence that we have in our student leaders because when someone asks for what the student the student opinion or student voice is on something, uh, as you say, Rebecca, you know, there's, there's lots of voices to this, but we have to take, you know, the student leaders, as we do, have to take a kind of representative or informed view. And sometimes I find staff are, are not prepared to take the opinion of one student, no matter how well-informed it is, um, yet that is what we do with staff. So I'm head of education, student experience for the MAPS faculty. So I will go to central, uh, so there's a UCL education committee um, of which then there are my equivalents from all the other faculties. And so then we sit there and we gather our opinions on things. Now, I've not done a survey with every single academic or professional services member of staff in my faculty. And yet what I am saying there is trusted as an informed opinion. And yet we do not give our student leaders the same courtesy. And I think part of that comes down to the, the training and the framing that we give student leaders um, as, as, as part, of, part of their training to be uh, course reps or society leaders, whatever that is. We don't recognise that as being something tangible or something worthy. So we're not prepared to listen to a departmental you know, lead rep. Um, to be representing the voice of students in the department when actually from being a student, from talking to their peers as much as they can and having a general sense, we should be, you know, we should be trusting that opinion as we do with any other staff member. Absolutely fantastic point. And you've just kind of, you know, that blow my mind emoji is uh, center right now. And I'm going to take that with me because you're, it's it's so true. We are not prepared to hear sometimes the truth about an experience of a course or a department or faculty or you know living somewhere in student accommodation and for fear that what if they don't like it what if it's wrong what if actually they speak the truth about something and we're not prepared to you know actually deal with that right now and and it's so true with staff we're not going to survey the staff and ask what we think about something we just take their opinion for granted and 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 trust that that is the correct thing based on their experience or knowledge when actually you've got our students who spend at least a couple of years in each of our institutions and why wouldn't we ask them what they think which is going beyond a survey why can't we talk to them or actually involve them at the very start of everything that we try and do and create for them Exactly. And when it comes to then the opinions on uh, central services and student services or sort of student affairs, as, as we would understand it, so take, take student support and well-being, the course rep structure is always very much centred around the course. Why can't you have within each department uh, a student rep for student support and well-being or a student rep for career, 
the career service or res life who can be embedded within a department just like any other course rep and is gathering and representing the views of students within their department or faculty whatever level you want to put that at we don't do that we don't make those connections between the student leaders we have locally within departments and then the very key central services that we rely on that is literally one of those things where someone says something and you go why don't we do that but but you're right but yeah it makes a lot of sense and you just think oh it's so stupid why we don't do that because it, it you know it would be so beneficial for us because the students are ultimately the experts on the very things that we are often trying to create and and uh, provide structure for. And, you know, you're right. We do it for course representation. We do it for student leaders. We do it at the SU. We do it for representation. So why do we not do it for the services that we run? It's a very good point. And I don't have an answer as to why we don't do it. Um, but I guess actually that does lead on to something which I suppose we can tie into the thing that brings all three of us together, of course, is our is our master's degrees from um, Anglia Ruskin when we were all studying on the student affairs program. Obviously, we uh, never crossed paths, technically. You were the uh, year before us, but um, we obviously know you as alumni through that. And one of the things I think all three of us... We know him because he doesn't stop talking about him. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. <laughs> That's such a lie. <laughs> such a lie. True. We did. We did feel. We did feel. We knew a lot about you, Zach, before we even met you. To be honest. Uh, so you know, yeah, we didn't really need to meet you. We could have done this podcast with Nikki and just still called it Zach, and we would have been fine. Um, but uh, I digress. But I think the thing that brings us three all together, and I suppose for anybody listening, you'll probably get a flavour of that already, is that the way we sort of feel about higher ed and the way we feel about our roles and the, the the contribution that we feel we make to the sector is based not just on our experience and not just on our views, but largely because of our masters and our ongoing professional development, if you want to call it that, it's based in some practice and some research, right? So it's something where we feel we have a good foundation to build our opinion on how we see higher education, what the purpose of it is for, how student affairs interacts with students. And I think, you know, Zach, that's something that you are very passionate about as well, is having that that research-based practice in what you do and what you provide and the services that universities have, that there's that there's a foundation there that, that makes sense, that has some kind of practical experience and is, for lack of a better word, more scientific in its approach. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I just... It does dishearten me when I, I I see colleagues in professional services roles, if, if I just put them under that broad uh, umbrella for now, uh, who are doing incredible work and yet maybe don't have the, the uh, be seen to have the authority to talk on certain subjects, for instance, um, or that what they are saying or doing is, is valid and contributing. Now, we all know and you know i knew when i was a back when i was a student support officer years and years ago of oh well if my students i give them a good induction and they know who i am then they're going to come forward if they're struggling so then and if they come forward and seek help then they're more likely to succeed and engage with their studies because i can point them in the right direction for everything and i knew that you know kind of starting out and it was only when i did the ma that it blew my mind of all this research out there that that actually goes into why that works 
and gives you all sorts of other ideas of, of how you can amend your practice based on research and case studies out there of, of how thing, how people have approached things. And yet we just don't talk about it in the UK enough. And I think it's, um, I think it comes down to just how student services were born in the UK um, compared to the US, you know, to, to have the role that any of us have. Uh, I think probably most of the people who listen to your podcast, we were to have that role in the States. A master's degree in student affairs is a minimum. And yet we don't expect the same for ourselves in the UK. And I think until we start professionalizing professional services or student affairs or student services, whatever you want to call them, then we're never going to get to that point. But it, it needs enough people, I feel, to, to stand up and start doing this research in the UK and, uh, and shouting about what they're doing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I was just going to say preach, to be honest. Yeah, we're so passionate about this area. That, well, the two of us, all three of us are passionate about this area, but I couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's, it's you know, the reality really is that, as you say, there's there's a certain disenfranchisement of ourselves, which I don't know, maybe is a British thing, uh, or is maybe kind of just the way our structures are there, that it kind of doesn't necessarily enfranchise you to put yourself out there and take the risk. The other thing I would say that I think is interesting uh, as a connection to what you've mentioned already is when you look at some of the countries where student affairs has progressed to a stage where it is more professionalized, say the US, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand are the, the main countries that pop to mind. The most consistent thing in all of those countries, which is very different in the UK, is the power of student government or student council or student representation. The students have so much more I mean maybe power is the wrong word but you know so much more focus on the student and so much more focus on student voices and I wonder if actually by not professionalizing ourselves we are inadvertently disenfranchising our ability to elevate the student. Possibly um, I do wonder if there's a f it does make me wonder if there is a fee connection there just because of how those kind of structures are set up um, but I think I think generally we don't help ourselves in terms of institutions because you look at the majority of university strategic plans and or professional services plans, for instance, and there's reference to PS staff supporting the academic mission. They are only ever there, whether you are a teaching and learning administrator, whether you are in student support and well-being or res life, wherever that is, it's only ever to support the academic mission. Whereas what we should be doing is embedding within our strategic goals to make the all these other areas as excellent as our teaching and as our research output recognizing that these are not there just to support academics so that you know they, so they don't have to worry about student support so that they can go and do their research and high quality teaching but empowering the experts and leaders that we have within these areas to give students a truly outstanding service support and experience Mic drop. <laughs> I think, to be honest, this this uh, episode is is turning out quite nicely because, to be honest, it is just kind of a series of mic drops at the moment. Look, it, it's probably no coincidence that we all kind of feel very similarly about uh, the way things are sort of done, and and that's not necessarily to criticise what's being done. And I think actually, it's probably a good time to maybe just step back and and just reflect and to say. 
certainly from my point of view, and uh, you know, Zach, you, you've said the same, but absolutely incredible work goes on in, in higher ed and in student affairs and, and professional services and, and in academic services as well. And it's definitely not to say that we're kind of looking at it and saying, well, there, there's, there's so much we're not doing and there's so much missing and the work isn't good enough. It's that fundamentally that there is a an underlying structure there that I think all of us kind of feel that even just with a few tweaks here and there, with a few different approaches and, and perhaps with a a different mindset that it could push us into into that kind of area where the UK is lacking. We're well known for a, for an excellent academic provision in the UK. Are we necessarily known for our professional services, for our support services? I don't know. Probably not. Well, no, probably not. But I think we don't have a strong enough identity of what that is. Yes, it, I, I do think there are some some structural barriers there. And just how we in ourselves, I think how professional services staff view themselves. And I mean, I, I when I talk about professional services, I do often think more of uh, professional services who are within departments and faculties, because those are the spaces that I have always operated in. And I have seen them places like, you know, central services like student support, well-being, counselling services, uh, res life. I feel like there are stronger and stronger spaces for them in, through things like Amoshi, but not so much for the kind of non-centred professional services. And th- I mean, I do think there is change, um, like roles like mine even existing in the first place. I mean, my role, there is an equivalent of me in every other faculty at UCL, apart from they are all called faculty tutor by one or two other faculties. Um, they used to be academic roles, so roles for academic members of staff, um, but are now actually professional services contracts. However, I am the only non-academic in that role. And so that's it's quite interesting. And they didn't call it faculty tutor. They changed it to head of education student experience. And uh, I think that was a good thing. I mean, I wouldn't have looked twice at at a, at a job advert saying faculty tutor, or it's head of education student experience. Like, yeah, that's cool. Well, I could do that. Um, and so I, you know, and I, I got, the, of course, I got the, some comments here and there um, around, you know, my my credentials to <laughs> to to uh, get involved in that kind of academic sphere of head of education. But you know, they they quickly went aside when they saw, okay, well, actually, he does know what he's talking about, and we can have a conversation about pedagogy. And I do recognize that you have expertise in your area that i can't get involved in i'm never going to tell a mathematician how they should how you know or what to teach during a, a maths program but i can have a conversation with you about your assessment loads and your assessment patterns and how your students engage in your teaching and your education because i have experience in in that pedagogical field um but also you have to recognize that my experience within the professional services route that I've taken is equally valid. And we can have a constructive conversation in order to develop our students and their experience. And how much better could potential courses or programs be if this similar approach was adopted in other universities, like the impact that your role has? And I totally agree. I think your experience and knowledge is is just as valid as that as the academics. And what I like about your position is that I'm seeing more and more of them, or at least yeah. at different levels or grades, 
coming up in job advertisements. So in the past, the word student experience would probably only focus on the social experience. And some would talk about the academic student experience or the you know, transition to university student experience or the transition out of university. And But actually, people are now realizing it's the whole student experience and it is there are so many elements to that and they all are valuable and they all need to be explored and they all need to be supported um, with roles like yours. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. But And I think we don't do ourselves any favours as professional services staff because when we talk about student experience, we can often be, I'm talking more central services, thinking on the student support side. When we talk about student experience, we can be exclusive of the education side. When... It's such, you know, it's the main part of students going to university. Um, So we need to stop thinking of it in this kind of fluffy way as well. And I think this brings us back to that point about the research-based practice. By professionalising what we do, we make it less fluffy. We make it something tangible and real. Yeah, and that idea of tangibility is really important, I think. And and that certainly from I you know, I would agree that my experience of working professional services is it's is somewhat intangible. Uh, you know, one of the things we always get asked is um to provide some kind of measurement of, of what we're doing and, and some kind of almost like we need to match the KPIs. And I I'm always kind of like, but the way we're structured is completely intangible. There's no way of doing that. Um, and I think the fact that that even exists as a question sort of indicates there's an issue for me. Um, I, you know, the the idea that you can kind of quantify something in in neat units, numerical units, just really doesn't fit the whole principle of what um, professional support and services is there for. Um, I think following on then from our conversation there, something that that frustrates me and it'll be interesting to see what your kind of view on things is is again it's it's tying into this idea of of student voice and i think we've touched on this idea of of basing some practice and some fundamentals and some research and i think that for me and sometimes the lack of that and not all the time but sometimes the lack of that leads to us getting to a position where we survey the hell out of everybody and it all just becomes this one-way street of we're going to set some questions you're going to give us good marks because we need them and that's going to make us look great league tables yay uh not mentioning the nss um but you know I, i think sometimes people think oh yeah well that's capturing the student voice and it's absolutely not uh it's very much the opposite of that uh so i mean from from my point of view it's not something I'm entirely keen on, as you may be able to tell. Um, but for somebody who obviously sees student voice in a different way and has a good concept of it, how would you kind of approach student voice and embedding it? And, and what have you done at UCL? Because obviously, I think there's a lot of interpretations that that aren't always entirely helpful. Um, so, you know, what's your concept of it when you fundamentally put it into practice at somewhere like UCL? What is student voice to you? There's, there's two questions there. Of, uh, we've kind of talked about what is student voice, but you're talking about how we capture student voice, right? Yeah, exactly. It's how do we how do we take that and how do we actually utilise it? How do we get it from students? So, yes, the NSS exists. Um, it is fundamentally flawed. 
um, and feeds into ridiculous league tables. And don't get me started on the Times Higher <laughs> But with the NSS, the thing that I always find fascinating, because we have to, you know, in, in my position, we get kind of the headline data and, you know, and we, we get emails about, you know, this is what our, our scores are this year and we're kind of held account to it in our things like uh, uh, internal quality reviews and things like that. And my thing is we'll, we'll stop looking at the headline data um, and look at how students respond. One of the most interesting things in the NSS, and I always bug whatever pl- whatever university I'm at, I always bug the planning team to give me the actual responses of students. Because I don't, you know, your, your funky infographics are fine and it's a start of a conversation and it's useful in some ways, but it's much more interesting to see how students responded. So with each of the NSS questions, they go on a scale of one to five. Of uh, strongly agree to agree, neither agree nor disagree, disagree and strongly disagree. That middle of the road answer, neither agree nor disagree, is the most interesting response for me uh, because it barely tells us anything, particularly if it's accompanied by very little information in uh, the free text comments. Because what the NSS reports on, so if you see a 70% uh, satisfaction in this question in the NSS. That's from students who have said that they agree or strongly agree with that statement. It's not telling you that students are 30% of students are unhappy. What I found is that there is a big chunk of students and normally around between 10 and 15% in every time I've ever looked at the NSS closer towards 15% on average of respondents who answer that middle of the road response. So students aren't actively dissatisfied in some areas there's just some there's something wrong there and what is that and it's particularly interesting when you get it around assessment and feedback that's normally where you get a bigger slice of students answering that middle of the road question so you have to take that and go to the student body and be upfront with them about the data don't hide behind it don't sugarcoat it say okay well you know X number of students, equivalent of 15% of our third years last year, answered neither agree nor disagree with this. Why do you think that is? Students aren't necessarily dissatisfied. Let's have a conversation about that. Um, So I find that always quite interesting when it comes to the NSS and response rates are also something that I get a bit touchy about as well. But when people think about surveys, I hear all the time, people, oh, students get feedback fatigue and survey fatigue there is no such thing as feedback fatigue there is such a thing as survey fatigue if you're doing the same kinds of surveys a lot of the time but I genuinely believe that feedback fatigue doesn't exist as long as you demonstrate the impact of student feedback and this is why things like within if I think within a a, a taught program, doing mid-module evaluations, for instance, is really great. You know, ask the students a kind of, what do I, what, what should I stop? What should I start? What should I continue? You know, what do you like? What's good, bad and the ugly? And as long as within a week, you've made changes to how you're delivering that course, or if it's within, you know, Students Porn Wellbeing or Res Live, you're making immediate change because you're asking for minimal feedback. So, and if you demonstrate to students the impact of their feedback, they are more likely to engage with you later on down the line, including in NSS responses. 
I agree with that. You know, if you can make those incremental changes as and when. But is it the case that in many institutions or I don't know, all of them, we're just not set up in a way to make those changes quickly enough unless they're really small and you can do it at, you know, a manager level or middle management level. Um, Is it that we're just a bit like, oh, no, it has to go through 10 committees before we do that? Um, Well, some of the kind of manager level decision making or program leader or or head of department, whatever that looks like, can actually on a day to day basis be the most transformative for students to focus on those things. I hate to say the words quick win. I really do. Uh, But the quick wins uh, going corporate speak. they they can be transformative to a student's daily experience. And when it comes to those bigger things that need to change, I think we need to remember how quick we have changed this year. Higher education, as we have all experienced, can be utterly glacial. And it, it feels like you're at the back of the Titanic with an oar, just kind of paddling away, trying to turn it away from the iceberg. Um, and you would get there eventually, but you know, you're know you not necessarily going to do it in time. Um, but this last year has proven actually how agile we can be as institutions. We flipped teaching and assessments and service delivery overnight. You send science boxes to people at home. <laughs> yeah, we we can do it. Like we we overhauled how we taught practical degrees. We overhauled how we support students from 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 afar in what we're delivering in terms of counselling and uh, student support. Uh, in terms of you know re- redesigning our our estates provision on our timetable and all of these things, some of those are you know deeply embedded within academic regulations and policy and uh, CMA, but we managed it. And what I find is that we just need to be a bit braver in what we do. No, oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because that is my thing. It's that institutions in the past have just not been brave enough to make to take a risk to do something that that they've not done before to do something in a way that is unconventional i mean i always you know look at certain institutions and i'm always looking at what they do and i'm a huge fan of somebody like birkbeck you know they 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 are who they are they they do what they want to do they're not in league tables they don't want to engage in that sort of stuff but the provision they have is amazing for what they do and that is what they do and they're amazing at it and i think it also ties in with what you said about things like the nss and being upfront with students and also empowering student leaders it takes bravery to be honest about your flaws and it takes bravery to be honest about where students are dissatisfied. But that's where the biggest learning comes from. You know, we spend all our time in education teaching the students that, you know, we we teach them or we should be educating them that failure or um, things where haven't things where where things haven't quite gone to plan is where the best learning takes place. And yet sometimes institutionally, we don't we don't follow that advice and we're not honest about that. And I think, I, I hope that in the same way, I hope that the larger society will reflect on COVID and will perhaps change longer term. I do hope that filters down into higher education as well. I, I do hope that we realize that we are 
uh, more than the sum of our parts and we can achieve a lot more than what we're already achieving, which is already a hell of a lot. I'm hoping one of the things that we take away from this is that... So we've we've recently uh, received all the module evaluations from term one for my faculty. We've looked at this and students are actually overwhelmingly positive uh, about what they have received in terms of their education and support from the departments over the last term and a half. And uh, I th- what I want everyone to take away from it is that we talk about students as if they're another species. They're just people. Yes, younger people in many aspects, but they're just people. They are pretty reasonable. If you tell a student, if they say, come to you and say, well, why can't we do X, Y, Z? Okay, well, we can't do X because of this reason. We might be able to do something with Y and Z yet no problem. If you tell a student why something can't happen or say to them, We've been told this can't happen, but how can we fix that? And this comes back to involving students in the design process of solutions rather than going to them with, for consultation. Then generally nine times out of ten, they're pretty reasonable because they are just people. It reminds me of an old boss of mine who uh, I get a bit freaked out if the CEO was in the same room as me. And he'd be like, he's just a person. He's just the yeah. same as you and I. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> same thing. Students are just people too. Yeah. And so, you know, we kind of touched on it a few times, but actually, but as a, a bit of a recap, Zach, um, we all should be doing more. You know, it's, it's clear to engage students and include student voices and move beyond the annual survey. So, you know, what are the top five things you might say that are is best practice for including student voice more in the work that we all do? Um, okay. Always student reps are can often be a great system um, so that certainly people to go to um students union they are you know whether it's student reps or uh sabbatical officers or society leads or part-time officers they're going to be your really engaged students so they're, they're really powerful um quick and dirty feedback to do it um so things there are so many systems out there i mean i am a particular fan of a, a system called mentimeter uh, which is an online kind of uh, audience opinion poll tracker, which you can do asynchronously. But you don't have to just have it live. And you could do all sorts on there and you can have bar graphs and free text comments and single answer comments, all, all sorts of things. Um, I advise everyone to check them out. I'm not being paid by Mentimeter to say this, um, but they are them. other services are available. There, there are other services available. I love Mentimeter. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, shout out Mentimeter if you fancy sponsoring us. There's always a deal in there. Um, but they, they, it's such a flexible and easy platform to use. So I was delighted when UCL got a site-wide license. But even if your university doesn't have one, you can have a free account and you can have essentially two two questions for free per presentation you, you, you have. I just... People just answer on their phones. You're making it quick and easy for them. And it's honestly, you get you can get so much out of Mentimeter. Oh, again, lots of other platforms out there. But that kind of online audience participation tool, whatever that looks like, they are great for that quick and dirty feedback. Um, yeah, I've seen it in use before, actually. I think, I think it might have been a conference, to be honest, yeah. or some sort of online training I was doing. And it is pretty cool, actually. It's a bit of a novel way yeah. of gathering feedback. And it's novel for those participants who are, who are using it or being asked to use it as well. 
yeah. Uh, use focus groups. Focus groups of students is really powerful. Um, and just linking back to our conversation about professionalizing ourselves, do an evaluation. Um, when if you're if you're doing an improvement process, ask students how it, it is now. Do the improvement. Ask them at the end. Evaluate it because all of this can be put together in for your university's education conference or you know something at a moshi, whatever that is. All of this can be evidence-based. It doesn't have to be quantitative. It can be qualitative stuff as well. Um, but, but amongst all of that, you know, I've talked about survey tools you can use and, uh, you know, you can have focus groups and use your lead reps and your student leaders. But there is an awful lot of power in the unregulated student voice. And there's an awful lot there because you're not always going to have every student coming to your, your workshop the whole nature of the name of your podcast about free food and drinks. You're only going to get so many students at those events. And there's so many. I know that there is, there is a bit of irony yeah, to the name. There's, there's, <laughs> there's, there's only so many students that will engage in that. And there are plenty of students out there who kind of fly under the radar and they'll have the informal conversations with uh, professional services and academic staff. And there's such power in the unregulated student voice. Um, there's a guy called John Canning who works at uh, Sussex, I think. Is it Sussex? I think it's Sussex. Um, and he uh, did an un- uh, wrote an, uh, an article about um, four theoretical lenses of student voice. And I would suggest everyone to go and read it. It's not a particularly long article, but he just talks about four theoretical lenses of student voice. And I found that incredibly powerful when I was uh, doing my MA research. We will find it and put it in the show notes. It's really interesting to kind of hear the approaches that you would advocate. And I think, again, it's it's just great how so much of, of what you're looking to do ultimately comes from, as you've mentioned, you know, this co-creation and, and from a student voices point of view, it's great to kind of have somebody uh, really on on the show just advocating that. And it's, it's just a wonderful thing. Um, Something that I am interested uh, to touch on, because I think we've, we've kind of touched on it a little bit, but we had a discussion before the show started about some recent uh, announcements that some universities have made in the UK about their approach to the impact of COVID and also on what they're doing with things like tuition fees and accommodation fees. Obviously, they're a big uh, talking points at the moment with a lot of rebates coming across both in uh, accommodation primarily but now we're also moving into this world of tuition fee and I know from my point of view we've had a lot of students um, at my university discussing this idea of well you know my experience is different or, or dissatisfaction or even satisfaction but still saying you know do you really feel that 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 is an appropriate amount to be charging and then there's a big discussion about this at the moment uh, and I suppose I'm kind of interested to hear what, what your view on it might be because from someone who's perhaps at the coalface of both sides I say sides it's maybe the wrong way of putting it considering everything we've talked about but if we're taking the traditional view of the academic side and the, the professional service side and the support side you kind of have a finger in both pies so you can kind of see a much more holistic view of it what what do you feel about things like tuition fee rebate or a change in fee rates or the impact of COVID, do, do you think that's something the sector should be looking to entertain or do you think it's a bit more complicated than it's appearing? 
Um, so it's definitely more complicated um, than, than it seems. And I think that's actually evidenced by the arguments that you're seeing on social media and in the news about about tuition fees, because one of the arguments that, that, that are being made is around students aren't getting the university experience. And yet it then switches to a focus on what the students are getting from their programme. And well, what's happening inside the classroom is often uh, removed from the other student services and that student lifestyle that that um, students may feel like they're paying for. So there really isn't a defined argument out there that has seemed to settled on what are students paying for with these tuition fees? Is it simply your academics? Because if we're just talking about your, you know, what happens in the classroom, we lead ourselves into really dangerous territory conversations about the difference in fee cost of a medical degree versus a degree in English literature because the, the running of those those courses are completely different. Um, and so I just think we need to keep that in mind. I mean, fundamentally and morally, I you know, of course I am in support of free higher education, but it can't exist without proper funding for universities because we know all too well that the first things that would be cut from universities are all the non-teaching and research-related activities and services. And we know more than ever nowadays that students rely on support services. They they are focused very much more heavily nowadays on what their career opportunities are going to be. So having things like student affairs centres and careers and employability services are really, really important um, to students. So with the with the reviews coming out about oh, are we going to have seven and a half thousand pound fees in the future? Great, I, you know, fundamentally, I'm all for cutting tuition fees, uh, but it has to be backed up by a suitable funding model from the government, which, I mean, let's be honest, we're just not going to get from the one that we have. It's difficult, isn't it? Because it's one of those areas that is such a politicised issue. Usually. And uh, it's, it's obviously a very delicate conversation. There's a lot of opinion and a lot of thought on it. And it ultimately as you say comes down to if the if the money isn't being paid by the student it has to come from somewhere mm. and i think i, I read uh, not too long ago uh, an article that discussed international uh, student tuition fee rates and it was something to do with the percentage of how it was used and it was essentially saying the long and short of it i can't remember the exact article but the long and short of it was that international students are charged x rate so that we can afford to do research and that is basically why they are charged so much mm. and you kind of look at it and you think oh, there's something a little bit twisted and backwards about that uh, that we're that we're essentially utilizing students to benefit ourselves and i know that there is then a, obviously a secondary impact on students is much more complicated than that and i am boiling things down to a very simple um way of putting it but it does feel inherently uncomfortable that we're in a position where that exists and i think you're right the the question of identity comes back ultimately mm -hmm. is you know what are we as a sector what is the purpose of what we do and you know Again, I, I would wager that all three of us uh, of our own university experiences, whether that be undergraduate or at master's level, it wasn't just the academics that kept us there. And it certainly wasn't just, and when I say academics, I don't mean academic staff, I mean the, the education side. 
it wasn't just the degree subject that kept us there, nor was it just the degree subject that means we are still working in education to this day. Um, it is much more complicated than that. And I credit you know, my career so far, because I've not left education, it's the only work I've ever done uh, since leaving university. I credit my time in university with my career and with the person I am now. And a lot of that has nothing to do with the degree that I studied. Uh, and I think that, again, we have a government that perhaps is leaning more towards trying to quantify value in terms of that you know, graduate outcome. You know, what, what are we getting back? What is the economy receiving? And I think it's a very dangerous route to go down when we're looking at uh, a more holistic approach to student development and young people's development and adults and, and everything else. And I think um, it's very reductionist to look at it that way. Absolutely. Um, the, the purpose of universities, whether that's through as as you say, and I had a similar experience through just simply going to university and and growing up and, and seeing how universities work. And for us, it led to a career in higher education. And for others, do go to university and they keep their head down and they, and they study because that's the field they want to go into and will lead successful careers. But no matter what, universities should be transformative for people and be an inclusive place to transform the lives as many as people as possible and it's just a, a concern if the funding for that is cut that it will lose that transformative nature and it will not be as inclusive um, in providing opportunities to people so that was zach and we had a lot of discussion around a lot of different topics primarily around student voices which is a term that i think i'm going to have to become a lot more used to using i think yeah, I absolutely agree. When I was listening to Zach, part of me was getting distracted and thinking about the social media content that I'm going to create to advertise his episode. And my first thought was, you know, that gif of Obama doing the mic drop? <laughs> yes. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm going to use because there were so many mic drop moments during that interview. Do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Zach, Zach's one of those people who just has has this kind of philosophy on education and higher ed and just absolutely believes in it and sticks to it, which I really admire. And I think, you know, we touched a little bit on it actually during the episode of this idea of putting yourself out there and, and kind of being an advocate for your way of doing things in higher ed. And I think Zach really embodies that. And I think, you know, he, he was, he was interestingly a little bit, and I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying that a little bit unconfident before he started, just because I think he thought that, you know, I, I, I'm not sure I'm necessarily somebody who fits a profile to be on a podcast like this. But equally, this is why we run this podcast. This is why we started it, is to bring voices like his to the fore, because there's so much uh, out there in so many people and so many of us that sometimes you don't always go forward for these things. And Zach's a prime example of somebody who may have been a little unconfident at first but then when when you have a discussion with him he has so much to say so much positivity so much engagement with the sector that you know it's great to, to be able to give him a platform to to speak about higher education the thing he's incredibly passionate about yeah and I'm quite jealous that he is someone who has a philosophy about education because I think that's an area that I 
probably talk less about and I feel like I lack a little bit in so I learned so much from him and he referenced a lot of things that we'll put in the show notes that I thought was uh, really interesting that I want to read I'll add it to that big list of stuff that I want to read and probably will never get around to read like all of us working in HE you've got a folder of stuff that one day I will open and actually read Um, but yeah he need not feel a lack of confidence because he's clearly someone who's brilliant at what he does is very well informed and passionate about it um and UCL I think are lucky to have him yeah absolutely I would I would go along with that and we thank him for his time and for his engagement in the episode we really enjoyed it and you know I'm sure he'd be somebody who we'd love to check in with again post coronavirus pandemic uh, because I think you know it's quite clear it's had a major impact on all of our jobs and part of me kind of feels like we need a, a wash up with almost everybody we've spoken to just to kind of see once the pandemic is is over in inverted commas what what is different in their world and I, I feel that uh, I'm kind of hopeful in a way that our, our podcast will act as a bit of a time capsule for what COVID was like in the education <laughs> sector at the time. Um, it's a bit of a strange thought, isn't it? A little bit of a strange thought, but actually you're, you're giving me some ideas now for future episodes, Rob. This wasn't the plan for our outro, but now I'm <laughs> like, oh, we could do an episode on this. So we could do an episode about revisiting some people that we spoke to a year ago, or we could do an episode with like snippets from everyone we've interviewed to show like the best bits of how they're adapting to the pandemic and what they're going to keep post-COVID. Whenever that's going to be, who knows? <laughs> See, so many possibilities. This is all just, this is just what happens when we get together, just ideas flow. Um, but yeah, thank you so much Zach for being involved it was a, a pleasure to speak to you and it's a pleasure to uh, highlight your philosophies on higher ed and especially with student voices on campus now episode 15 is one that we're really excited about and we're really looking forward to issuing for everybody listening it's going to be issued and posted a little bit sooner than usual and there's been a bit of a break between our january and february one however our march one is going to be sent out on university mental health day and that is primarily because we are speaking to dr dominic thompson uh, hopefully those of you listening should know uh, Dominique but if you don't she is an amazing person who's spending a lot of time talking about student well-being uh, all kinds of things really on a well-being and mental health side of things in higher education for students and we're int- massively grateful to have a, a section of her time to be put in an episode that's going to go out on March 4th I think it is University Mental Health Day so we will be sending that out very soon and we really look forward to all of you hearing it we're very proud of it so thank you again for listening to this episode we hope that you tune in for the next one and as always stay safe and take care bye